Hello and welcome to part 12 of the Miyazaki Countdown from Some Like It Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by the Countdown crew, Scott Shelton and Jay Habib. Today on the podcast, we're looking back at all the highlights from our series on the films of Studio Ghibli master Hayao Miyazaki. But first, how are you guys? I'm sad, Scott. I mean, I know, I know we have one more Miyazaki movie coming very, very soon, but that's it. Like, when... You know, not, not to start the whole is he retired or not debate, but when is the next time we're going to get to watch one of these for the first well, time? I mean, when it, yeah, I was going to say, whenever you want to pop one on and rewatch it. Is the for answer. the first time. <laughs> yes, no, I, I'm i otherwise doing well, though. Like we were saying before we went live, you know, it's been it's been quite the countdown. I really enjoyed myself. Of course, thank you both again for including me in these. This, this has been a really special one. Scott? I'm doing great. I... I'm just going to go ahead and, and say that I've now seen Boy in the Heron twice after watching it for a second time earlier this week. And though it may never happen again that I watch a studio uh, or a Hayao Miyazaki movie for the first time, uh, I will eternally enjoy uh, watching all these movies for the fourth, fifth, sixth, whatever it is time. And I think as I've, one of the enduring features that I don't know if it's going to explicitly come up on the podcast, but one of the enduring features of these movies that I found is that I find more and more to think about and to enjoy and to love about these movies every time I revisit them. So honestly, I'm excited to hear from you guys as, as you rewatch some of these over the years, what maybe how these films and how they affect you evolves over time. Cause I really like, I've already started to experience that and I'm sure that I'll experience more as I, you know, grow older, I'm still relatively young with relatively, you know, fewer experiences than Miyazaki had when he was making a lot of these movies. So that, always leaves me with something to think about. So I'm doing great. I just, uh, in the non Miyazaki world, just also just came back from a four hour documentary about a French three-star Michelin restaurant. And that was quite transportive. So I've had quite a day. Um, but yeah, it's, it's December boy in the heron right around the corner. A lot of movies on the table still to watch this year. And, uh, it's exciting. Listen, I don't know what you guys are talking about. It sounds like this guy has like two more movies in the can after this one. So uh, I think we're going to be watching his movies. Maybe Look, I'm not taking anything for granted. But... I, I'm just yeah. trying not to. No, no, I would love course. for him to go full 80s on us and pump out a couple in like two or yeah. three years. So I'm being I'm being a little bit funny, obviously, with saying that. But um, he, yeah, is old, no, he, he is old, obviously, but it's, it's uh -huh. not like filmmakers aren't regularly making movies older than he is because Clint yes Eastwood. he's 80 80 is very old please protect Clint Eastwood's our... 93 yeah i mean what how old is ridley scott he just pumped out like three movies in two years he's in his like, 70s yeah i thought he was older than that i thought i thought ridley was older than that i, I don't he he might be i don't know if he's correct the 80s yet but um he's an old guy for sure brother he's 86 years old Ridley Scott is 86. Okay, <laughs> yeah, uh, man. Yeah. Hand up on that one. I, I thought he was younger, but anyway, you think yes. he was based on how uh -huh. many movies he's putting out, but and yeah. how, how much in the in the media he just lets it rip. But um, but anyway, that guy hasn't missed a beat. Um, although his last film was a little bit. Eh. You think he's uh, a as of you can hear Miyazaki? on, on some like it's Scott. Um, but yes, this is the final episode of the countdown. Um, and, uh, we will be doing our retrospective as mentioned, as we have, you know, done here on the last few series, at least, uh, wrapping things up. It has been a great year on the countdown. We got through two 
awesome series with Wes Anderson first and um, now with uh, the Studio Ghibli. We finished up Wes Anderson. So, yeah, we, we certainly got a few uh, of those movies recorded a little yes. earlier than this year. <laughs> but, yeah. but, you know, we were commenting recently. I, I don't know if this was on air or not, but like it's it feels like it's been forever since we watched a movie that we didn't like or maybe that's just me because i know that jay was maybe a little bit more mixed on some of the wes anderson movies but um but yeah like we've, yeah i think we got to mix it up in the future i think we got to do you know somebody with uh with some hits and misses maybe a ridley scott countdown that's like so many movies I, i'm really being joking about that but um anyway it, it feels like we're getting spoiled with uh with the series that we've done but that's also our own doing because we're picking these and and we kind of know what we're getting into but um yes it was another great series i'm looking forward to talking about the highlights with you guys as is tradition sort of on these retrospective episodes now we have a series of questions that we're going to go through um and just sort of you know recapping the series and some of your standout moments and performances and you know everything that we want to talk about but i want to start off by asking you guys um, sort of a more substantive question about sort of the themes that we have seen across Miyazaki's uh, filmography, because obviously one of the interesting things about doing this, these series is watching the filmmakers evolve um, in the sorts of things that they are interested in um, as we, you know, move chronologically through their films. And I think Miyazaki certainly falls uh, in that camp. You know, there's there have been three or four different, you know, ideas, I guess, that we have um, discussed over the course of this series as sort of being the major you know tenets of of uh of miyazaki's philosophy if you will um and so i'm curious and i'll i'll go to scott first on this question but um, i'm curious scott about you know if you had to pick one that sort of resonates with you what would it be and you know where have you seen it across the films that we've talked about yeah for me it's maybe the one that gets cited most frequently and I guess I am falling uh, victim to the easy one to point out, but I'll talk about it in, in a little bit more detail and, and what aspects of it specifically really stick with me. And, and that is, of course, all of his films that have some <laughs> sort of eco narrative connection to nature, duality between nature and production, things like that. I think those elements are one, maybe the most consistent theme that you see in Miyazaki's movies. It's not in every film, but there is a big push for it across many of his movies, almost in every decade, I'd imagine, of his filmmaking career. There is some, you know, some semblance of that of that theme in, in one of his narratives. And I sort of find the pinnacle of that really in Princess Mononoke, where he takes a lot of those ideas that he maybe played around with in something like Nausicaa, which is maybe the, the closest parallel to what I'm about to talk about, but then, of course, in My Neighbor Totoro and a number of other movies, I think to some extent, almost every film probably touches touches on this. I think there's a connection to nature even in Kiki's and and when she goes out into the woods and when, when she's having her mental block, I think that's another example. But this this real deep exploration of that theme in Princess Mononoke, where I think he takes his most nuanced stance on it or makes that nuanced stance really explicit for the first time. And that is around this notion that when he thinks of being environmentally conscious, when he thinks of protecting the environment, he's not talking about sacrificing industrialization and human advancement 
and technological advancement at all costs. He's talking about a real balance between those two things. And I think in, in certain films, maybe you'd point to something like Ponyo, things can feel very simplistic at times. But I think the sort of true colors and his true beliefs about some of these topics that I think are really the pivot to have a conversation around is something like what you see in, in the duality element of it that he really flushes out in Princess Mononoke. And so for that reason, and for that movie specifically, I think it's the reason why it's the one that sticks with me the most. And every time I watch a Miyazaki movie that has an element of that, I always sort of, in my mind, I'm always processing that as I know that there's something deeper here. And and it, how is he sort of manipulating that theme to address that and to and to really make you think more deeply about it? And I found that to be a great success of Princess Mononoke. And, and it's probably his, like I mentioned, I think it probably is his number one enduring theme uh, across all of his filmography. Definitely one that I expected to come up uh, for sure. And I, I think it's hard to talk about Miyazaki as a filmmaker without talking about, you know, what, all, all, of, all of the things he has to say about the environment because it is so omnipresent in his oeuvre. Jay, your thoughts on uh, the theme that stood out to you? I think what I would consider, if not to the 1B to that, the theme of environmentalism is pacifism. I think, you know, in we have <coughs> movies, again, across decades where we see sometimes it's not necessarily war, but, you know, sometimes it's war, sometimes it's greed that leads to unnecessary destruction. You know, in, in Nausicaa, right from the get-go, right, we have those, I'm forget, it's not war machines, it's not the right word, but you know, we, we have a society that was essentially destroyed by something like this. Um, you know, in Castle in the Sky, we have a really aggressive military part of the story. And then as we move throughout uh, his filmography, we have pretty prominent characters who don't want to take part in war, you know, to, to varying extents. You know, Hal won't, Hal and Hal's moving castle won't show up to, you know, fight in the war. Uh, and the wind rises, you know, Jiro is really more, you know, lamenting that his planes will be used for war, but again, very much like, you know, not, I mean, yeah, she's just not loving that, right, at all. And then, of course, Ashitaka and Princess Mononoke, you know, the, again, a lot of the themes that Scott already touched on between environmentalism and coexisting and whatnot, you know, are really woven through this. But again, another, like, you know, all-out war between two sides is not the answer. Um Again, I, I do think that 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 weight that this weaves in a lot with environmentalism because in at least a few of these movies, like the one you know one side of the war is the environment or just like what's going on, um, like in the world around, right? In Nausicaa, um, just to use that again, just to bring that back. So, yeah, I think that you know environmentalism is definitely. I think. For me, the one A, this is prop pacifism is probably the one B, if not the two. Yeah, I agree. Again, these are two of the three that I expected to come up, and I'm glad you know you guys just took it right in order as I hoped you would. So the third can fall to me now. So I just want to mention that I think obviously the importance of being a kind, compassionate person is something that's very important to Miyazaki and something that we see um, in you know, almost all of the films, if not in the protagonist, at least in the supporting, um, you know, characters. And I think it, it tends to be a takeaway that you have a lot from a lot of these 
movies is, you know, look at how much better we could be if people were just kind and there wasn't anything more to it than that. Um, and I think, you know, you see this in something like Kiki's Delivery Service. Obviously, Kiki is a very kind person. She has this positive attitude for the most part about everything that she's doing. And ultimately, she faces you know, tribulations throughout the movie, but she's able to persevere and to make the people around her, you know, better because of her attitude. Um, and, it, you know, it's consistent. Again, you think about even in the supporting characters and something like Porco Rosso, where you have a lead character who's a little bit of a grouch, but he has people that care about him. And that, you know, opens him up as a character that allows him to, you know, sort of see the good side of himself and, you know, dig himself out of the the drudges a little bit. Um, and then, of course, I think the most prominent example of this, obviously, is in Spirited Away. Um, I think, the you know, the movie is kind of anchored around this whole idea um, with Chihiro just sort of facing all these different challenges and different, you know, nefarious creatures and, and individuals when she's in the spirit world and meeting them all head on with the same sort of approach, the same sort of you know, kindness, positive attitude. I'm thinking about the scene, obviously, in the bathhouse. Um, and, you know, while it's not always easy for her to do that, and it does wear on her, um, it ultimately pays dividends and ends up, again, rubbing off on pretty much everyone around her. Um, even the old woman, I can't think of what her, her last name, is, what her name is, but the the chief sort of antagonist in Spirited Away. Um and to the Yababa. Yababa, yeah. To the point where they're all, you know, just sort of accepting to to the point where you get to that final scene and everyone's like shouting down Yubaba, like, no, you just let her see her parents again, right? Like you don't need to put her through this final challenge and whatnot again. Um, and so I think I, I really appreciate that, you know, this is such a prominent theme in his movies for a lot of reasons, but also because, you know, children will be watching these movies. And maybe that's something that we overlook with some of them because we're not children anymore and we're you know starting sort of talking about them on a deeper level obviously we have already but um being able to make these children's films and and starting kids young so to speak with this you know these seeds of what type of person that we should be um i think is is something that can't be overstated the value of that so um i definitely wanted to shout shout out that theme because you know, as somebody who gravitates more towards the human stories in all of these films, it is something that resonates deeply with me and I think is prominent in my favorite of these films that we've talked about. I think that it kind of tends to be the the overarching message. So that is Miyazaki thematically. Um, I want to move on now and talk sort of in general about the chronology of his films, because we've covered four four different decades, five different decades over the course of this series. We started in the late 70s with The Castle of Cagliostro, and we finished up in 2013 with The Wind Rises. So I want to ask you guys, what is your favorite sort of era of Miyazaki, if you will, your favorite decade? Um, I, and I specifically sort of limited this to the 80s, the 90s, and the 2000s, because that's when he was, you know, we have multiple films coming out. Obviously, we do have Castle of Cagliostro. And I wouldn't blame you if you said the 2010 just because it has the wind rises and, and you know, nothing else. But um, li limiting it to those three options, you know, uh, Jay, what, what, you know, what would you say is your favorite sort of decade for Miyazaki's films in general? Yeah, this was a fun question because 
you know, I think each of my top four favorite movies are in a different decade. That being said, you know, I, I find it hard to go against the eighties. You know, he was, he churned out, you know, four projects during then. I feel like it's really hard to argue with the one, two, three of castle in the sky, my neighbor Totoro and Kiki's delivery service. I know a lot of people also really like Nausicaa, but I'm not quite as high on that. So I'm not going to take credit for that uh, when shouting out the eighties, but I feel like, again, that that's a one, two, three, that is really hard to beat. Uh, you know, I think that that's, that's a one, two, three that, you know, I, I'm obviously haven't seen, you know, nearly as many films as y'all, but I feel like any director having three films of that quality would be, you know, quite the achievement if he of course goes on to have more, but he has those three, you know, in succession and they're all, you know, of course we've already talked about this a little bit, like thematically there, there is a lot of like overlap between these, but they all feel like they're distinct unique stories you know one a little bit more actiony one is a spiritual adventure and then one is another is a tale of growing up right like they you know i he, he didn't miss he, he just did not miss so I, I think i have to take the 80s scott do you uh concur do you want to be contrarian and go with another decade here i mean I, I think jay certainly makes a convincing case I think ultimately I, I do agree with Jay. I would settle on the eighties. It the the problem really lies in I think kind of the nugget that Jay was saying is that each decade has an outstanding film in it that we're talking about. I mean that is that is the truth for me. But when you zero in on I think two of those decades having two of the weaker films in the filmography as well, in my opinion, it sort of dilutes down the punch of the 90s and the thousands if you're just thinking about it in terms of a decade if i could be like more precise with with my decade maybe i'd carve out something that's like a little bit of one decade and a little bit of another decade but obviously that's not how this question works so i think ultimately i do go i would go for the 80s but i do think that it's um there's a strong argument for the 2000s yeah i mean I, i'm realizing now that maybe it was kind of an easy question even though he, like you say he has made outstanding films in each decade when you look at them at you know in general yeah i think the 80s comes out on top yeah i think there's a strong i mean i could i i almost get there on a strong argument for the 2000s because i i mean spirited away is obviously not only is it one of my favorite films but it's widely considered his greatest film uh, at least, at least, at least in terms of critically and commercially, Howl's Moving Castle, although a step down from Spirited Away, I mean, almost everything is a step down from Spirited Away, and it's still a, a pretty incredible film that I think ultimately really did something different and did something that, a lot, frankly, a lot of animation doesn't try to tackle, which is this notion of aging. And so many of Miyazaki's own movies, right, are about children. You were, we were just talking about it, uh, or you were just talking about it, Scott, kind of adjacent to one of the themes that sticks with you the most about being compassionate. So often we see that in children and then to then take a movie and fold something onto that almost is the opposite, right? It's, it's the idea of aging and growing older and, and this idea of how to live your life that way, I think creates a really strong argument for that decade. But Ponyo is a, is a, is a great movie, but it is one of my least personally, my, one of my least favorites. And that's not a knock against the film, but it makes the 80s and, and pretty much outlining exactly what Jay was saying with Castle in the Sky, My Neighbor Totoro and Kiki's Delivery Services, sort of the, the hallmark three movies in a row that I would highlight. And I would even say 
Jay acknowledged it as well, but Nausicaa being a really strong outing as well, even, you know, is it one of my favorite films personally? No, but the fact that it's still one of the great films and the fact that he went from Castle Cagliostro to making something like Nausicaa is such a strong statement. It's it's the 80s for me as well. I need to issue one yeah. correction. They are not across four different decades. I don't know how they're to five. Read. They're they're no, no, sorry. The when I said my four, my top four across four different decades, that was a lie. Oh, okay. I forgot how to read. I'm just issuing this correction now <laughs> in case you harp on it for me with me later. Sorry, go on, Scott. That's interesting because um, I thought it was totally feasible. I mean, it's so I it's very that. feasible that I your totally top four would be across four decades. It's just incorrect, but it's totally feasible, and I okay. agree. Carry on. Interesting. Yeah. No, I think maybe the interesting wrinkle we could add into the question. Let, let's say that uh, that Kiki's Delivery Service, right, which is the last movie in the 80s. What okay. if it comes out of the 90s instead? I think that makes it a question. little bit more difficult. Uh, it's still the 80s, but yeah. It probably still is. But then yeah. you have, you know, you have Kiki's Delivery Service. You have Porco Rosso and, and Mononoke. I think the problem with the 90s is just that you only have the two movies as very good as both of them are. Um you know, it, I think that's why it falls a little bit short. But it's the 80s for me. I mean, you, you guys are going to see when we do the rankings. It has three of my top four favorite Miyazaki movies in it. So it's hard to to beat that, um, honestly, at the end of the day. Um, so, yeah, uh, again, maybe a little bit of an easier question, but still, I think, a, a fun one to discuss. Moving on. Um, voice performances are not necessarily something we've talked a whole lot about over the course of the series, just because I think it's hard to talk about voice performances in the same way that we talk about you know non-voice performances um in our other series that we've done um but it probably is worth spending uh just a couple of minutes here on this retrospective episode talking about any voice performances that stood out to you in the dubbed versions because i think the dubs are generally so excellent um you know as far as tr translating over and, and and the actors really putting in their all um, that I am curious who you guys would mention here um, if you had to put give somebody a moment in the sun, Scott. Yeah, I thought long and hard about talking about different movies as I walk through these different questions that we had on offer. And and this is a category where I was like, OK, there's like several different ones that I would highlight. I'm not really sure if I have a strong preference of one versus others. So I'm going to pick a movie that I don't think I'm going to be talking about as much to highlight a character. So I am picking Martin Short as Kurokawa in The Wind Rises. I, the first few times that I watched this film, and I think I even talked about it in the last episode, the first few times is like, I didn't even really register that it was Martin Short. And I really felt like I underappreciated Kurokawa as a character. And this most recent watch, going back to the things of, there's things that I grow to like and love more and more each time I watch them. I mean, that character specifically started to really stand out more and i think martin short really sells that character as not off color but this sort of kind of quirky voice quirky guy aggressive very much like you know output and industrial focus and everyone needs to be working and we expect the best things from our workers at the mitsubishi you know aeronautical engineering plant where they're making the warplanes but at the same time i think you see the real compassion to go back to that theme that Scott is talking about, the real compassion from that character as Jiro goes through many trials and tribulations over the course of the film, going to Germany, you know, having this sort of failure of his model, even though the work is good, um, 
sending him away to this retreat, having him come back and then helping protect him against the secret police. And then, of course, when uh, Naoko is sick, uh, providing them a place to stay. Like I, I find that character really compelling. And I think Martin Short's performance really almost really sells it. Right. Because I, I think it's one of those things where it's easy to let that slide under the radar because so many things are going on in the film. But that performance, that voice performance really elevates the elevates the role. Yeah, I think the Wind Rises has several really good candidates for sure. Definitely in terms of the voice ensemble might be the strongest film um, in the, the filmography. Jay, your thoughts on, on a standout? Funny enough, I had a similar thought process to Scott Shelton where I wanted to at least put some effort into diversifying across movies. You know, we'll see how successful I am if I have to go to backups and whatnot. Um, and I'm going to cheat a little bit because my favorite voice performance is actually two voice performances. Um, and that's Emily Mortimer and Gene Simmons as Sophie from Howl's. Um, nice. I think that, I mean, there's just something so, again, we're talking about, you know, characters and, you know, how, I mean, you know, the, the voice of a character, of course, in this medium, like really lends itself to, am I going to like you or not? Am I going to feel for you or not? And there's something really likable, likable about Sophie, how she sets out to find her place, you know, in this, like new magical reality, despite her voice tra or her transformation, um, I think both voices really bring a lot to that. It, you know, as I was thinking about a question you're going to ask soon about, you know, protagonists, we really like, it was hard not to think about Sophie for a little bit. And I think that in large part, that's due to the feeling I hear behind those performances. I feel like it's just really hard to convey that level of like earnest, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to make my way uh, that, you know, Sophie's putting forward in a situation where I would be losing my mind. Yeah. I think that's a great shout. Not one that I necessarily thought of, um, but uh, yeah, especially the, the Gene Simmons performance, I think just bring something different than, you know, we, we get in other movies just because the character is bringing something different. You know, we have a, an older protagonist. And so I think that's a great shout. I had a couple that came to my mind. I think my close runner up is Minnie Driver as Lady Eboshi and Princess Mononoke, I think is a great um, shout, even though, you know, the character was, yeah, I expressed some things about the character on the episode, but I didn't please have don't anything to do with Let's her. please not rehash them. <laughs> I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna rehash them. All right. Okay. I'm not. Um, but uh, I think the her performance is, you know, I don't have any issues with that. So um, I almost went with her, but I did go with, and I, I might get some eye rolls for this one too, but um, I really enjoy Michael Keaton as Porco from Porco Rosso. Um, I think, you know, again, talking about offering something different, I think, um, you know, so many of our protagonists and everything, and, you know, maybe this slightly goes in the next question about protagonists too, but um, our children. Um, and it's interesting to hear, we, we're getting the exact opposite of that with Porco, really, because not only is he like, you know, an old, older man who has been turned into a pig, but um, he has this really gruff, like, gr grouchy personality um, that I think is so, um, you know, essential to obviously to his character and the arc that he undergoes over the course of the movie. And Michael Keaton's sort of very deep sort of, you know, baritone that he is bringing to this performance and almost just sort of grumbling and mumbling his way through some of the lines of his character, I think just adds so much color to 
uh, Porco. And so I really appreciate what he's able to do. Um, maybe not one that people will think of because I think Porco Rosso is kind of just an overlooked uh, overlooked movie in uh, Miyazaki's filmography in general. But um, I really liked what um, Michael Keaton brought um, to the lead character there. Moving on, rolling right along into the favorite protagonist um, category uh, question. Jay, I'll throw it back to you. Um, you know, who was your favorite lead character? It's a tough question because there's so many strong protagonists in his movies, but um, I'll throw it back to you. Who stood out to you the most? Who, you know, was the one that really you felt like, uh, you know, carried you through uh, all the way with, with the movie? Yeah, this again, this was a really, really tough one. Um, I, I think, you know, on any given day, I think they're one of two answers I could give. Uh, I'm not even talking about Sophie. And again, I really liked her as well. But um, because I think the other one's going to get taken by one of you two, I will go with Kiki. Um, I think her story, I, I think there's a lot of stories that, you know, Miyazaki has told that we can relate to. I think even in that hers is one of the, one of the more relatable to audiences across, you know, the world and all walks of life at different stages in life, you know, life is constantly full of change. Um, and we can all find adjusting to situations full of change quite exhausting, right? And, you know, I, I come away from, I come away from, you know, the end of that movie, just be, you know, feeling like, okay, yes, chasing passions, you know, living is challenging, but of course, worthwhile. And that, you know, things can always get better no matter how bad they seem. It just, you know, a wonderful story about, about, you know, coming of age and finding yourself in the world. And I think Kiki as a protagonist just absolutely carries. You're certainly going to get no argument from me on that. Scott, your, your choice. He's going to take my second choice. I'm just making a prediction here. Go ahead. Well, I would have said Kiki. Kiki is my oh. number one protagonist in the series. Uh, that, honestly, I didn't think it was a hard question. I think she is she is the best for me, mainly because of the emotional journey that I think she goes on. I'm assuming you're talking about Chihiro is the other protagonist no, that you go actually, back and forth with. Um, no, okay. I would have guessed Jiro, but sure, Jiro. Okay, yeah, and yeah, I mean, that's fair. He, he, he I, he's my second, but that's fine. I was just I was just guessing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I would have yeah. I mean, I would take Kiki first for a lot of the reasons that you outline, but it's also just kind of about the the story that you tell in the time of the, of the time of my life where I saw the film for the first time. I mean, I saw it freshman year of college. I think I talked about this on the podcast. It was a time where I was going through, I, I mean, like kind of exactly what Kiki is going through in the, in the film, right? Like, yeah, I'm not moving to a new city and getting a job and needed to find my role in society, but I'd moved to a, a very foreign place. Uh, didn't know anyone when I moved there. And that comes with its difficulties. Obviously, there are great highs, as there are for Kiki as well, and there are great lows also. So I think Kiki will always hold that place as my favorite protagonist in Miyazaki's movies because of that. I'll have a really hard time, I think, ever replacing her for that reason. And some of that is, you know, point in, a point in time type area. But yeah, I mean, like Scott was saying at the top, I can't really... You know, there's only a couple that I'd even like take issue with anyone saying is like the best protagonist in a Miyazaki movie. So it's spoiler for choice as we have been the whole countdown, really. Yeah, for sure. I mean, my mine, you know, oscillates between a few people. I could certainly go with Chihiro, I think, you know, is kind of an 
obvious choice, but with y'all having gone with Kiki, I think I will deviate just slightly and, and pick Jiro from the Wind Rises. Um, again, I think we sort of all have the same, maybe top three there, but um, yeah, I, I think uh, just such a, a fascinating and, and also, you know, you guys are talking about sort of relating to Kiki. I think there's some relatability there in um, the character of Jiro and struggling with this thing that he you know, has such a, a big dream about, like, you know, he, he, it's sort of all consuming the, his, his love for flight and his want, his desire to make beautiful planes, to design beautiful planes. And, um, you know, I think that's, that's, uh, you know, something that anyone who has really thrown themselves into their work or been passionate about, uh, their career and what they do can relate to, but obviously he has these other, external factors which are impacting his ability to do that job um, for better and for worse. Maybe, you know, you have the fact that uh, he knows his planes are going to be used in the war, which he, he's opposed to. He doesn't, you know, want the, the planes to be used for that purpose. Um, but, you know, has sort of has to shrug and say, well, we made beautiful planes, right? And that's the important thing at the end of the day. Um, because there's there's really no way out of that predicament. And then, of course, you have the added elements of, um, you know, him and Naoko, who he falls in love with, and, um, you know, her her dying as he is, her, her sort of on the way down, so to speak, as he is on the way up with his work, um, and the way that he has to deal with that situation and balance that, um, you know, I think just makes him such a, a complex, but genuinely, again, good, kind-hearted character um at the end of the day even though maybe he has some regrets about the way he he handled things and maybe um you know there's really no great way to you know resolve the situations that he finds himself in um but he he approaches everything sort of with the same attitude and i think um it's hard not to admire that character at the end of the day and um his you know his his passion again and his desire to see that become a reality in spite of everything around him so um i think jiro's an amazing character that you know is one of the reasons why the wind rises is such a, a masterpiece i think we're all agreed on that but moving on in the character department and talking about sort of branching out the supporting characters, the ensembles in these movies. We have a lot of different types of supporting characters. You know, there's sidekicks, there's villains, there's just, you know, a lot of colorful characters across these movies. And so it's probably hard to narrow it down to just one or two. Um, but Jay, I will go to you. Um, if you had to single out one or two people who stood out to you from uh, sort of the, the litany of supporting characters we have to talk about, who would you choose? Yeah, another tough one because, you know, we have humans, we have spirits, we have animals. Like, I feel like we could do a, a question for each. I don't think we should. We even have we spirit animals. Could. Sure. <laughs> and we have spirit animals. Um, since you've uh, allowed me to go one to two, I'll go with the one-two punch of the giant Totoro and the cat bus. They're... You know, I, I think there are a few different ways you could answer this question, but to me, like, I'll never forget, you know, watching the scene in the rain where the giant Totoro is like playing with the umbrella and then the cat bus comes out of nowhere 
And I'm, you know, I'm just sitting there like, what is going on? I think it was the, I think that moment is how, you know, coming into this countdown with just whatever peripheral stuff I'd picked up about these movies, I was expecting to like hit or, you know, to like to feel as I was watching. Um, And again, there's no shortage of like really, you know, meaningful, powerful side characters that we see, you know, in much more like emotionally fleshed out moments and stories but you know there there was just something about you know that that scene in the rain and then the you know the cat bus just showing up out of nowhere that you know i think honestly like brought back the kid in me a little bit that was that was something really fun look there's a reason it's arguably the most iconic scene in in miyazaki's you know filmography i think it's certainly in the conversation if if not number one and yeah Everyone remembers that character. Um, so I think that's a, a great choice. Scott? Yeah, I, I, so often in Miyazaki films, I feel like the sidekicks, for the lack of better words, the sort of familiar friends, so to speak, have big standout moments. I mean, we talked about Gigi on the Kiki's Delivery Service podcast as sort of climbing up very quickly to the top of that list. I think Calcifer although I know you talked about not not enjoying Billy Crystal's performance on that podcast, Scott, like I find Calcifer to be another one of those characters that is, it really brings the balance of this sort of tone of the film a little bit, because I mean, this is a film about war and about aging and about being displaced from your home. And I think the humor that Calcifer as a sort of a side character brings is really important to the balance of the movie. But number one for me, going back to my neighbor Totoro, uh, and I'm talking about the dad, Kusakabe, the father, to me is the sort of standout supporting character. Talking about, almost going back to that theme you were talking about at the very beginning, Scott, about the compassion. One of the things that really stuck out to me on in this countdown series, on this watch, was how compassionate the dad is, right? Like, I talked about on the podcast how watching this movie, I see this this really fleshed out person who isn't perfect and is trying his best but like the has qualities that i just so admire in a parent and that i'd want to replicate and i think that that really i mean that has really stuck with me and one of the things that has been added to my <clears throat> thoughts and beliefs about about these movies and so often as has already been mentioned multiple times on this on this episode even you see that in the in the children. You see that in Chihiro. You see that in Kiki. You see that in Nausicaa. You see all these young people. But then to have this father figure, actual father, right, in the movie, having those traits shows you that Miyazaki can also see it elsewhere. And I think that that's something that I found really affirming in My Neighbor Totoro, but also in this in this countdown series. Absolutely great choice. We we certainly see some bad parents uh, in the Miyazaki oeuvre as well, thinking, of course, about Chihiro's parents out of Spirited Away right off the, the top of the dome. But Were they bad um, parents or were they just bad people? Are they yes. either? I mean, are they, are they are they really either? I don't think we really know that much about them, to be honest. No, sure. And, well, sure. I mean, sure. Even that... the questionable decisions they make, I feel like, are just in relation to eating food that doesn't appear to be theirs. Not necessarily... Mm -hmm. bad parenting but maybe they're setting a bad example i don't know that's bad. yeah I, I, maybe that's a little bit of an overstatement by me but anyway i think they clearly stand in opposition to someone like 
uh, the dad out of my neighbor Totoro, who you're you're mentioning there, Scott. So is there? Um, this is not like a gotcha, but like, is there someone else that comes out? Because I was trying to think about this when you said this. Is like, are there examples of like parents or even like any sort of like familial figures that are bad? I mean, like, there's like some weirdness, I guess, and like the in the in the pirate gang and castle in the sky. I don't know if I'd call that person a bad parent though. I believe isn't isn't um isn't the mom in Howl's Moving Castle a little bit um Yeah, a little bit, yeah. That's true because yeah. yeah, she does betray her, right? So that's fair. That's fair. I think that that was the other one that kind of yeah popped into my mind. But anyway, going in a different direction, a completely different direction, because I want to go all the way back to the first film that we talked about in the series, Lupin the Third, The Castle of Cagliostro. I think there's so many fun characters in that movie, but for me, it's got to be Zinagata, right? The the character of this inspector who is sort of following after uh, Lupin and has been sort of his arch nemesis, his Javert figure, if you will, uh, who has pursued him. Um, and, you know, kind of over the course of this movie, ends up allying with him, you know, begrudgingly, uh, only for him to get the wool pulled over his eyes one last time again in the end. I think it's just such, such a fun sort of character trope in a way. It's not the first time we've seen a character like this. Um, again, I think about somebody like Javert, although that's, you know, less fun. Obviously, it's more of a, a psychological battle that's going on there. But I think he just adds something... Um, fun to that movie which is you know sort of a more traditional action good versus evil type movie you have this character who's sort of a go-between and uh you know i just think he's a lot of fun and uh you know he's he's smart enough to stay on the trail but not quite smart enough to do that you know final final step and and now blooping once and for all so um i i after watching that movie you know i i wanted more of these sort of Lupin movies I thought would have been a lot of fun and I, definitely more involving, you know, these two characters in particular, Zenigata and Lupin, just sort of going at it um, in, in a number of different adventures. So uh, he was the one that I, I had to choose for, for this question. All right, moving on. Uh, your favorite score, obviously Joe Hisaishi, um, one of Miyazaki's biggest collaborators, um, we've talked about his music throughout the series. Um, it's a hard choice. Again, we're spoiled for choice, really. Scott, do you have a favorite? Spirited Away. No, it's no. Music. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, what is it? What is there? I mean, this is There's the problem. Say, yeah. This is the problem with talking about Hisaishi. I think that, I mean, everything he does is great. And it's just a matter of what's the one that's stuck. That's like just like stuck into your brain the most. And for me it'll probably always be spirited away. I mean, it's the reason why I chose it for the music to be the intro and outro for this whole countdown series. I mean, it is sort of the soaring moment in spirited away when Jahiro is riding the spirit of the river, the river's name. I can't remember, but Haku, Haku. in dragon form. Well, that's not the name of the river, but the, yeah, yes. in dragon form or whatever you would call that specifically that creature. Um, and and I just walk around and it's it's one of like the handful of things that I just randomly catch in my head. It just sort of comes out of nowhere. You know, there's like a few pieces of music like that from film and from video games that sort of are just like permanently drilled into my head. And even the smallest things can trigger that. And Hasashi's got a few of them, to be fair. <laughs> it's not the only one, but spirited away for me. It's 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 everything that score. 
Jay, your pick. Yeah, look, if we were going to go with what is most stuck in my brain, I cannot tell you how many times I've walked around just like humming Totoro to myself. And maybe I should have <laughs> saved that movie for this question and not a different one. Um, so that's my bad. But I think, you know, recency bias might be at play here, but I really love the last, you know, 15 minutes of The Wind Rises. I mean, I think the score in the movie, you know, across the movie is incredibly well done. I think, you know, I... I think that something, and this is not like a particularly, you know, crazy thing to say, but I think the ending of a movie like just really sticks with me, especially like if the music is just there with, you know, whatever emotional payoff or whatnot is happening. Um, I feel like, you know, there, there were, there were two ending scenes that I feel like really, really just brought it home. And I think the wind rises was one of them. And I think that the score is, a really big reason why I also I feel like I wasn't paying as much enough attention to the score as you guys in some of the earlier ones which I do regret to some extent but I do think that's you know easily e- easily rectifiable if I just hop on Spotify or go to the Joe Hisaishi uh themed concert at MSG next July yes of course uh, I also go with the wind rises um yeah, I think I said it when we we had our review, but um, it's just just like those first notes or so. I, I don't even know how to like describe it, but they evoke something like so emotional in me, like that. I'm They're like, very like Italian lilting kind of mm-hmm. string, like plucking of a guitar is what it sounds or plucking of some stringed instrument. When I hear those those notes, I just think, man, this movie is beautiful. Really, you know, that's just kind of instantly just upon hearing. Um, the the score and and i think i think that you know miyazaki wants you to take that away even in spite again of of the the difficult things that it's tossing around and you know the sometimes tragic things that we see happening on screen um there's something beautiful about creating art um and joe hasaishi certainly created a lot of art that we got to um to witness over the course of this series so uh, it's very similar to kiki's and porco the yeah. scores of those two films as well. It's it's almost this very like European inspired. Yeah, I mean Kiki's is obviously another one that stands out to me, just especially in the flying scenes. Um, just so whimsical at times in a way that I love. But all right. Uh this is one that we talked about during the Wes Anderson retrospective, but I think it's kind of a fun question. One thing you would change about a movie that you love. Um Scott. Oh, get to go first. Okay, I I thought long and hard about this, and short of saying that The Wind Rises should be three times as long so I can watch six hours of it, I will say that I would change the ending of Nausicaa. I talked about this on the podcast. I don't think the ending is the, is the right one. I think that I don't know if if I was hated for that comment on the podcast, especially by Paul. I think you were hated for it right now. Scott Harvey's jaw just completely (laughs) dropped as you said. No, I don't. I don't. I don't know. I could. I don't think Scott cares that much about about this one. Yeah, I'm mainly joking. I do love the ending, but I I hear. Yeah, I want to hear you out. I no. I just. I just think that. Look, I. I'm not going to say that. Right, but ultimately, I. I think that it would have been emotionally more moving for either the film to end ambiguously or for Nausicaa to have given her life and her life be the cost of the folly of all these conflicts between different tribes, different and tribes in nature, like 
ultimately it's not that there was no cost for some of these things, but it, it honestly, it, it just didn't, it, it didn't strike the right note at the end of the movie for me. And it's one of the things that held that still holds me back from giving it the masterpiece level score that I think a lot of his movies are, but I still love it, right? There's still so much to say positively about the film, about the construction of it, about the themes and the narrative. I think there's so many great aspects to it, but yeah, just something about the ending is a hang up for me personally. And that's the one thing that I would love to, I'd love to, I'd love to change if I could, but I wouldn't, honestly, I would not assume so much as to say that that's the right answer and that it should happen. It's just how I feel. Fair. Uh, Jay, your, your pick. Yeah. I thought about this for a while too. I didn't want to pick anything too drastic. Truthfully. I think, you know, I think there have been a cut. What? Boo. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, like, I I don't want to presume to know better than Hayao Miyazaki here, right? Like, in any situation, really. But I, I'll pick one that I did mention earlier, because I do think, at least as an adult watching this movie, and, like, maybe just, like, a little bit of a neurotic adult watching this movie, it kind of it gives me pause, and I'm like, wait, what about after this? Um, and that's the end of Spirited Away, when after emerging from the, you know, tunnel or whatnot. You this see is 100% car, your neurotic brain. This, this, is, cra- this is crazy that you're bringing the this car, up again. Look, this was clearly a choice that was made, right? They didn't just, like, use the same frames from before. Like, they drew in, okay, the car has been drawn or, like, grown over. Like, time has passed. What is going to happen when Chiro goes to, like, her house with her parents and, like, it's been sitting empty for five months and the movers aren't there and what just happened? Like... I know this is again. I'm I'm purposely picking something kind of absurd after thinking about you know a couple of things for movies that like I really did love, but I didn't want to like really knock anything. So this is me just being like, what happened? How much time actually passed while they were in the spirit world? Well, this we came back. Crazy to that. guys, this is, <laughs> this is my crazy. We we came back to that. Um, and, I still you gave know, it I a guess. ten, guys. Like it, it's you did. You know, I just. So what would you change? You you, you want you want there to be like a, a whole last act of the movie to see no, what happens. No, just don't show the cars as overgrown and the car is like overgrown. And then, you know, in our minds, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, yeah, maybe she was gone for like a day or a week, like, but not like months, I would assume. Look, if, if you're seeing forests grow fat that fast in a few months, Jay, that's that's scary stuff. That was a year. That was a year. So isn't that like all the more reason to? I feel like there's probably a great Reddit thread out there about this, Jay, that could put your your concerns to rest, possibly. So, uh, or stress I'll, I'll you out even bit. more. Or stress you out even more. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes Reddit can do that too. But um, my pick, again, perhaps will not come as a surprise, but. Castle in the Sky, a movie that I do really enjoy. Uh, there's just sort of one small holdup that I have with that movie, and it is, of course, the character of Patsu, um, who is our sort of male, lead male character. Um, I, I, there's I don't one small know... problem: the lead character. Of the film. <laughs> well, I don't think he's the lead character of the film. I, I would, I would, I would put uh, Sheeta as sort of being more of the lead character. But anyway. Um, I, I don't have like a specific thing. Hey, you know, we need to do this. But in general, I, I think that character needs to be more proactive, if you will. I think he is kind of on the sidelines for a lot of the movie and is kind of just, um, you know, he, he's, he's just there for moral support and for like uh, making his own 
problems about, you know, wanting a friend, I guess, uh, placing those on the same level as this clearly like more serious, dire situation that they are facing in front of them. And I called him a simp at the time. Maybe that was a little harsh, but um, I do think there are some, he has a few moments of that. And uh, I think, you know, Miyazaki generally writes such strong characters and such strong child characters too, that I feel like he's he's definitely capable of threading the needle a little bit better of having this character not just be kind of there for so much of the movie and even kind of getting on your nerves from time to time. So it's it's a hard choice because there's not a whole lot I would change about many of these movies, but um, it, it is something that stood out to me is because I think I do think that could um, be one of my favorite of his movies if it wasn't for you know some of the potsu stuff just being a little you know again she to know is just like stuck in <laughs> over and I think over I think to reduce that character as some as as someone who is just there to provide moral supports like I just think that's like easily forgetting the fact that his father is this person is is like this person who photographed the castle in the sky and he in he's motivated to prove that his father wasn't crazy i think that it's like i feel like we're kind of leaving that detail out but yes but i think that that part of it needed to be foregrounded a lot more because it just feels so much more like it is about sheeta and her quest more so than like i just feel like that Mm -hmm. maybe is relegated to the background a little bit more and um that's because the relative priority of like finding the castle and then like preventing the air of the of the thing from like destroying the world is like just like relative re- like or like scale of the problem is is different but i i take i take your point i know that you i mean yeah. other things. maybe that's a problem in and of itself too right that they're kind of sort of just inventing a reason for this character to to be but that's every I mean, that's every movie but that's like every movie yeah yeah, yeah but yeah but it's a little more you know tacked on i guess than than the reason that she had it, it you know just, just the man should have taken control there. of the situation and inserted himself more. I agree. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's, that's that was my <laughs> point. Um, all right, <laughs> moving on. Standout visual moment or moments. Um, we've talked about the animation, the evolution of the animation over the course of the series. You know, is there is there a standout image or a visual moment um, or moments that you guys want to highlight here, Jay? Well, we were just talking about this movie, but. And again, I think there are, there are a lot of choices, but again, wanting to share the love a little bit, I will talk about Castle in the Sky. Um, and I want to highlight specifically when they're breaking through to Laputa, you know, there's all this lightning swirling around them as they're breaking through. I think there are some really amazing stills in there of just like, you know, bottom to top, like, you know, I want to say like eight or 10, just like lightning bolts um, as they're moving through. And then, of course, you know, adding to that scene, uh, just to bring up what Scott just talked about, you know, we have Pazu's dad, uh, you know, essentially like, or, you know, essentially encouraging him to like push through. Um, and in a movie where, you know, I, I think I could have easily picked two other stills or, you know, visual scenes in there. I think that's one that just really stuck with me. Um, make of it what you will that I am picking the one movie I didn't see in English to talk about, you know, the the visual aspect of, but I'm sure I will get around to watching this in English in the not too distant future. Or maybe more importantly, getting around to watching all the other ones in Japanese. Why not both? Sure. Scott, your pick for this question. 
yeah, time to keep spreading spreading the love around for me as well. I think Castle in the Sky is a great shot. I really did at, have the exact thing that Jay is talking about. And then the one right after, both of those, uh, sort of on, on my list of sort of visual moments where it really sort of takes takes your, not necessarily breath away, but I think it really shows you how he's pushing the envelope at the time from his own animation movie to movie. And I, I think sort of the bigger jump even than that for me was Howl's Moving Castle. Specifically, there's a scene, I think I talked about on the podcast, like at the very beginning when you see the 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 moving cast, like the moving castle just sort of walking along the landscape and sort of seeing how he's blending these sort of hand-drawn animation with the computer-generated imagery. I think the way he's able to fuse those things is so elegant and so um, breathtaking for me. And then at the end of the film, when he takes that, imagery when he takes that uh design and that skill that he's developing here and showing off and he has the castle fall apart he has the castle moving along the landscape and falling apart after uh after calcifer is removed and i just think that was like sort of like wow he's really cooking with his art in this context and so i found Howl's moving castle to be one of the real standouts for me in this in this respect yeah, for me, again, it comes down to a couple of, of moments as well. Um, I think it, it's funny. We just talked about this movie and this scene, kind of. But uh, the ending of Nausicaa, and specifically the image of Nausicaa riding in on the ohms, you know, sort of fulfilling the prophecy at the end of that movie is such a sort of triumphant, you know, awesome image um, that I think just embodies what that character is all about. Um, so that's one that comes to mind. And then Ponyo is not a movie that we've talked a lot about, but I think it is a great looking movie. Yeah. And the tsunami sequence in the movie, I think, is is pretty breathtaking, honestly. It was it was definitely I mean, so much of the movie is told in visuals more so than any of his other movies, I think. Um, and the tsunami sequence, I think, is kind of just spellbinding to watch. And so I did want to shout that out as well because I knew Ponyo probably wasn't going to come up a whole lot, but I think it deserves credit in the visual department more than more than any other uh, department for sure. I do agree. I, I thought about having a scene from Ponyo as well. All right, we're into our last couple of questions, guys, and, and it's kind of our wrap-up questions, if you will, that we have in our, in our normal episodes. We're going to start off with your favorite scene or moment from the entire filmography of Hayao Miyazaki. Uh, big question. Narrow it down. Scott, what's your answer? All right. I was really deciding between two at the end of the day. It's the one uh, coming in second place, if, if you'll allow me, from sure. The Wind Rises. That is the scene that I talked about you know, just a week ago. And that is the scene at the beginning, sort of the first dream sequence that he has with Caproni, where Caproni talks about and says for the first time that the line from the poem, the wind is rising, we must try to live. And I think that just sort of soars through you. I think the one that Jay pointed out as well at the end of the episode, like that, or at the end of at the end of the film is also one up there for me. So like, there's so many little moments in the wind rises that stick out to me and, and really move me. But I am going with with no face in the bathhouse from spirited away. I think I don't actually even think that's the scene that I said in on the episode because I think someone else might have said it or I don't know exactly what it was. I don't actually remember at this point, but that is my favorite scene. I think in all of Miyazaki when he come like when he is like rampaging through the bathhouse and you have 
I think it's like the scene in the film that strikes me repeatedly the most from a visual perspective, from a thematic perspective, from a character perspective. It hits like everything that I that's like on my mind when I'm watching Miyazaki. I think the Hasaishi score too is, although not that big soaring moment that I just talked about a few uh, a few questions ago, does also still highlight the cross of like whimsy and fantastical and um, moving at the same time through that. And it fuses everything together. And when you have Chihiro interacting with no face, it sort of just hammers all the things I think that we've said about spirited away and Chihiro as a character and the themes of the movie home in the most effective way that it can. And I find it extremely satisfying and is one of many, you know, flawless scenes in, in Miyazaki. Yes, so many to choose from. Uh, Jay, which one did you go with? Like you said, Scott, lot, lots to choose from. But I think, I honestly didn't have to think too hard about this one, even though I think there are so many. The one that sticks out to me, and I did mention this one uh, when we talked about Kiki's, but the final scene, just fly. It was, I mean, I I still to this day can't really articulate you know, what it is about seeing her, you know, get back on the broom and then, you know, awkwardly like crash and fly the exact same way she did at the beginning of the movie, but she's back now. But something about the way, you know, the music is going, the tension is building and all of a sudden it just gets quiet. You know, you see her just like trying to focus, you know, her hair starts going up, everyone's looking and then all of a sudden just, you know, flies off and box into a building. Um, but then, you know, continues on and saves Tombo and uh this you know I actually ended up re-watching Kiki's uh in Japanese uh because it happened to be playing at Alamo Draft House and I still cry like I cried a second time <laughs> you know it yeah I don't know I something about that scene just gets even just like talking about it and thinking about it like you know it just does something it, it really gets me every time yeah, uh, I think my my runner up is from Kiki's, and that's sort of the whole long sequence where she, you know, brings the cat toy, but the, the well, she has to deliver the cat toy, and the cat toy gets, you know, lost because the the birds attack her, and then, um, you know, Gigi has to pretend to be the the cat, uh, and there's the giant dog who turns out to be a friendly dog and helps them out in the end. I love that twist at the end of of all of it too. Um, that long sequence is just delightful. But I'm also going with Spirited Away. I'm also going with the scene in the bathhouse. For me, it's the scene when the spirit of the polluted river shows up. Um, I think just uh, kind of like Scott was saying, there's so much in that scene. Obviously, you have the environmental element of it and the fact that sort of humans cruelty and greed perhaps is is what has made this uh, river polluted in the first place. And then, of course, you have Chihiro, um, although she is sort of asked to, to do it she does it right she doesn't react with horror or you know she's not grossed out in the same way that everyone else seemingly at the bathhouse is she just you know sees somebody that needs help and she is willing to help him and you know ends up pulling out the the bicycle bicycle handle bicycle um from the spirit and sort of cleansing him and revealing that he is he is actually um just a, a river spirit the whole time. Um, and I think um, just just a delightful, you know, 
sequence, but also very, you know, moving in its own way, the way that Chihiro approaches that um, without thought for the fact that, you know, this is somebody that is sort of an outcast um, by this in within the spirit world. I think obviously you can extend what's going on there to a lot of different contexts in the real world, so to speak. And uh, I think that's a beautiful thing. And, and one of the things Miyazaki is just so gifted at doing in his storytelling. All right, final question, guys, to wrap up the Miyazaki countdown. Let's hear your rankings. Jay, we're going to start with you. 11 to 1, start at the bottom and work your way up. Sure thing, Scott. I am just going to mention this before we start throwing things, that these are all, you know, at the very least, like very good to absolutely phenomenal movies. So let's let's keep it civil. But... At number 11, I have Ponyo. At number 10, I have Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. At number 9, I have Porco Rosso. Number 8, Castle of Cagliostro. Number 7, Princess Mononoke. Number 6 is Castle in the Sky. Number 5 is My Neighbor Totoro. Number 4 is Howl's Moving Castle. Number 3 is Spirited Away. Number two is The Wind Rises. And number one, my favorite protagonist, Kiki and her delivery service. We'd love to see it. Scott, your rankings. Yeah, I got to mentally, as I look at my list here, not 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 say Boy in the Heron and where I have it on my list. So I got I to gotta be extra careful here. Uh, my number 11, The Castle of Cagliostro. My number 10, Porco Rosso. My number nine, Ponyo. My number eight, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. My number seven, Howl's Moving Castle. My number six, Princess Mononoke. My number five, Castle in the Sky. Number four, My Neighbor Totoro. Number three, Kiki's Delivery Service. Number two, Spirited Away. And number one, The Wind Rises. All right. And I have at number 11, Howl's Moving Castle. Number 10, Ponyo. Number nine, Castle in the Sky. Number eight, Princess Mononoke. Number seven, Porco Rosso. Number six, Lupin the Third, The Castle of Cagliostro. Number five, My Neighbor Totoro. Number four, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. Number three, Spirited Away. Number two, The Wind Rises. And number one, Kiki's Delivery Service. So we all had the same top three. The middles, I think we're all over the place of our, the middle to the bottom of our list. We're kind I thought of you said three of your top four was in the 80s. I'm a little confused. I, I realized as I was reading it, I meant three of my top five because okay. Totoro comes in at number I got five. I, I yeah, I, I just made a little mistake because because when you said that, I five. my brain started spinning. I was like, which of Spirited Away and Wind Rises is not in his? <laughs> what top was four? he cooking? Yeah, <laughs> I no, was like that's crazy. <laughs> no, no, they they both made it, but yeah, Totoro's at five. That's that's what I meant. Totoro, Nausicaa, and then obviously Kiki's at number one. So. um we're agreed, I guess, on the, the best of the best and the rest, you know, sorts itself out. But I think we can all agree it was a great series. So many great movies. And uh, Scott, obviously, you've seen The Boy and the Heron twice, but Jay yeah. and I, I think, very much looking forward to it. And I have very few doubts that it's going to be a great, great film worthy of, um, you know, inclusion. In his Look, what, what I will say is that I think we'll have a lot to talk about. I don't know when you guys are seeing it versus when we were recording, but I like that I've had a couple months to think about the movie is what I'll say. <laughs> That's what I'll say about the about the film. So we should circle back in like February of 24? Yeah. <laughs> Happy to re-review. 
re-review, he says. I'll just make sure that I see it twice. Give myself a little extra time to marinate in it. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I do love a thinker. So we may be, Jay and I may be uh, figuring out our thoughts as we are recording the episode, possibly, uh, as we're talking through it with you. Uh, might be one of those types of reviews. But um, anyway, um, well, that will do it, guys, for the Miyazaki Countdown series. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed listening to this series as much as we have enjoyed uh, giving it to you, producing it. Uh, if you have and you'd like to support us, don't forget about our Patreon page at patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. Even if you can't support us over there, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, like, do all the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. Of course, check out Some Like It, Scott. That is where you will find our review of The Boy and the Heron coming very, very soon. So check out our main podcast right here in the same feed. And we hope you'll join us in 2024 for all that Some Like It, Scott and the Countdown crew have to offer for you. Until then, for Scott Shelton and Jay Habib, I'm Scott Harvey. We will see you down the road. Oh,